Let's open our Bibles to Romans 6. Romans chapter 6. If you've been with us, you know that this is a beginning of a new study, or a new section, major section of the book of Romans. So far, in our study of Paul's letter to the Romans, we've seen, after an extended introduction that went from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through 17, because Paul had not personally met the Romans, at least not very many of them. It was likely founded as a result of his ministry in other places. But he, has, he introduces himself, and then in verses 16 and 17, introduces the theme of his gospel, where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So in the very introduction, in the very thematic statement of the epistle, he lets you know how we're rightly associated with Jesus Christ, and it's through the word faith or the word believes. Whether we're Jew or whether we're Greek, we all have the opportunity to do that. And then in verse 17, he quotes an Old Testament passage, Habakkuk 2.4, for, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And then in chapter 1, verses 18 through 1136, which, of course, we're not to that point yet, but for the rest of the doctrinal section of the book of Romans, Paul talks about this doctrine of justification. First, the need of it in chapter 1, verses 18 through 320, and we've, we've been over this many times, but I don't want you to go over it so much that you can't forget it. There are three categories of persons that Paul says all need the gospel. And these three categories of persons are an inclusio for everyone that's ever been born. First, the immoral person. And everyone that's reading through Romans would agree, amen to that, the immoralist needs a Savior. And particularly, he picks out a couple sins that everybody recognizes. For example, some sexual sins, homosexuality and, and such, and actually just rejecting God outright. We'd all say, amen, they need a Savior. And Paul says, amen, they do. Oh, but by the way... The moral person who's saying, amen, they need a Savior, you need one too. Because even though you condemn them for doing those things, you do the same types of things. Now, you may not do the same exact sin, but you still sin. So not only does the immoralist need a Savior, according to Paul, the moralist needs a Savior. But there's one other category of person that's sitting kind of in the background. And they're saying, that's true. Those Gentile immoralists need a Savior. And um, the Gentile moralist, they need one too, because they're Gentiles. But us, we, we're rightly related to God through the Mosaic Covenant. I mean, we're rightly related to God because we're racially related to God through Abraham. And Paul says, no, actually not. You had the oracles of God. You had a higher responsibility than anybody else. And you need a Savior, too, because even though you had the oracles of God, you weren't following the oracles of God. Nobody does. And then he says the whole world is under sin. All are under sin in Romans 3, 9. And then in the most well-known verse in this first section of the book of Romans, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So first we see the need of it, and then this broken down into, I'm sorry, the explanation of it, what justification is from 3.21 to 5.21, is broken down into four sections. First, the explanation itself in 3.21 through 31, which we said at the time, was one of the most theological sections of the book of Romans, and it is. We just got through finishing a second very theological section in Romans 5, 12 through 21. The second, in chapter 4, we see an illustration of the concept of justification by faith. Remember who the major character was in that chapter? The illustration of justification by faith? Anybody? Abraham. That's great. And you see why he might use Abraham? 
because the Jew is one person that has a problem with this theology. So he went right back to Father Abraham to show them that Father Abraham himself was rightly related to God, not by genetics, but by faith. And if that's the way Abraham's related to God, then that's the way everyone else has to be related to God as well. The expectation of justification, we saw in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, key word there was hope. And then we just got through spending several weeks on the amplification of justification, where Paul spoke of two headships in Romans 5, 12 through 21, Adam and Christ. And he says, you're going to be related to one of two persons. And as we finish this up, I was encouraging you to pay particular attention because a proper understanding of what we studied over the past three to four weeks will now help you in your understanding of Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. I don't know if you've ever been through Romans before. I don't know if you've ever picked up books on Romans, but some theologians, some Bible teachers, prefer to start their study in the book of Romans in chapter 6. And so you'll see books written about 6, 7, and 8 because it's a sanctification section. You want to kind of cut through some of the other stuff so we get right to the good stuff. You know, it's kind of like guys who were putting up some like, like me when I put something together, which is rarely, but I skip through all the first pages of the instructions to get right to the part that I want to see. And then usually I have to turn it over to one of the kids or Cindy or hire somebody <laughs> to do it because I make a huge mess of it. That's what's going to happen if you do that to Romans, too. You start in chapter 6 with a, with a sentence like this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of you have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death? You have so many exegetical difficulties and problems there, so many interpretive issues that you won't have a clue about. What kind of baptism is being spoken of? What kind of death is being spoken of? What in the world is Paul talking about that we should sin, that grace might increase? You can't start Romans with Romans chapter 6. You've got to start it in Romans chapter 1 and work through it. And then when you do, Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 are going to be so beautiful. They will change your very life. In Romans chapter 5, remember there were two headships, Adam and Christ. Adam disobeyed or sinned. It resulted in death for all, <clears throat> for all actually. Christ obeyed, and this results in life. Now, when we're born, Paul says we are all born associated with Adam, in the headship of Adam. And if I was to add a new word tonight that will help us in Romans chapter 6, we are all born identified with Adam. And if I was speaking to all Greek speakers, I might be so bold to say, we are all born baptized with Adam. Now, I'll explain that in just a minute. But what we'll see is that the word identification and the word baptism speak of the same concept starting to see why you need to see Romans 5 before you can understand Romans 6. We're all going to be identified at any one point in time in our life with one or the other of these two heads. You're not identified with both at the same time. You're all, we are all, everyone, born identified with Adam. That pretty well takes care of it. If you're born, you're identified with Adam. If, unless you're hatched, which is unhappy to human beings, you're identified with Adam. Now, those 
who follow the pattern of Father Abraham, the one that Paul has set forth already in this epistle, in this epistle and exercise faith by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, are now identified under the headship of Christ. Or perhaps, if I could give you a preview, we're now baptized into Christ. Romans chapter 6 will make a lot more sense if we understand the two headships of Romans chapter 5. There is no water in the baptism of Romans chapter 6. That's a huge mistake that even some fine expositors make by not following the context and the flow of Paul's argument. So, First, the need of justification in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Second, an explanation of what justification is in 321 through 521. Now we come to a major division in the book of Romans in chapters 6 through 8, where Paul addresses the subject of what does justification or how does justification affect me? How does justification affect me? We've had an incredible amount of theology, but now... What do I do with it? I want to tell you, this is not the beginning of the formal application section to the book of Romans. If we were to divide Romans up into just theology and application, the first 12 chapters are essentially theology. And then 11 through 16 is essentially application of that theology with Romans 12, 1 through 2 being the key hinge verse that lets us know that we just entered into an application section. But the, the material that we'll speak about in Romans chapter 6 through 8, while it's in the theology section, is critical to the everyday applicational nature of your journey toward maturity even though it's not in the te technically speaking in the application section. What I'm telling you, this is theology, but it'll be hopefully transparent what the application to this theology is every week that we go through it. Now, let's continue on. Here in Romans chapter 6 through 8, we're introduced to the topic of experiential sanctification, also known as progressive sanctification. Now, I want to make sure we have our terms right because I'm going to I'm going to use the term sanctification in Romans 6 through 8 in a, in a very special way, and I want to make sure that we are all on the same page. Sanctification means, in its most basic sense, at least theologically, to be set apart. If, if I was to, to do something that's non-theological, I would say we, we might sanctify this box of Kleenex uh, to that chair. It's, it's now not on this table, but it's over here on this chair. Now, that's a very secular way of understanding the, the term sanctification. Something has been separated from one thing and then placed in something else. We've been studying for the past year, a little over a year now, the idea of positional sanctification. We have been set apart in Christ. At the moment of faith, we were declared righteous by God. We weren't made righteous. We were declared righteous by God. And we've also defined that as justification. And remember, in this entire section, Paul is explaining what justification is, all the way from 321 to 521, and then uh, 
develops the whole doctrine of justification from 118 to 1136. So if we were to put one word under here, it would be If you wanted one word to say what's going on in 1 through 12, it's justification. But now we're going to narrow that down a little bit because there's different types of, of justification, or I'm sorry, sanctification, and along with this concept of justification. There is a positional setting apart, which we have spoken about. That's Acts 16.31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. When you're justified, you are saved forever from the penalty of sin. You will no longer have to fear spending any time in the lake of fire. That's a permanent thing. You have already been saved from that. There's a term theologians use, next called experiential sanctification or progressive sanctification. That's going to be the subject of chapters 6 through 8. And in those chapters, Paul explains that you are being saved from the power of sin in your life. And then the third type of sanctification is, uh, is uh, ultimate sanctification, also known as glorification, which will come up in Romans chapter 8. And that is that you will be saved in the future from the very presence of sin, something that we don't think about as an incredible blessing in heaven. But I'm, I bring this up because in Romans 6 through 8, most of the time I will use the term sanctification in its experiential sense. In other words, progressive sanctification, experiential sanctification, or you can, if you don't like the word sanctification, think of it as the maturing process for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The process of becoming mature in Christ. That's the subject of 6 through 8. Now, I better have your attention now, because that's what everybody wants, right? I, mean, I hope everybody in this room, if you came out on a night like tonight, the, as horrible as the traffic was and the weather was, I hope you're interested in progressive sanctification the maturing process. Now, that's the part that we've just entered into. You also can see why a lot of people like to skip one through five and get right to six, because that's the good stuff. They want to hear that. But you're not going to understand six, seven, and eight without one through five. In Romans 6 through 8, Paul will outline how the believer can be saved from the power of sin in our lives. This section is nicely divided up into three areas. First, Romans chapter 6, the believer and sin. The believer and sin in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 7, the believer and the law. The believer and the law. And then in Romans chapter 8, the believer and the Holy Spirit. In fact, Romans chapter 8, when we get to it, we will see Romans chapter 8 has probably more information and in teaching about the Holy Spirit than any other <coughs> single chapter in all of the Word of God. What do you think is number two? Just for grins. Quick, anybody? We've already studied it. That's Galatians 5. In most people's mind. Romans 8, Galatians 5 are the two chapters in the New Testament that probably tell us more about the Holy Spirit than any other chapter with maybe the exception of, of John chapter of John chapters 14 through 16. Jeff, would you turn that back on just a circulatory way? In, in Romans chapter 6, the believer in, the, in sin, what Paul will teach us is that I can say no to sin. I can do it. Now, we don't know how yet, but he's going to teach the principle, the believer can say no to sin. In Romans 7, Paul will teach, though I can say no to sin, I seem experientially to fall into sin. So Romans 6, I can say no, 
Romans 7, even though I can say no, experientially I find myself not saying no. And then in Romans chapter 8, Paul teaches, I can say no to sin by means of the power of the Holy Spirit. So see, it's not until Romans chapter 8 that the Holy Spirit comes in and we find out that's the way that we can become a maturing Christian. You don't become a maturing Christian unless the Holy Spirit is working within you. So, again, Romans chapter 6, Paul teaches, I can say no to sin. Romans 7, though I can say no, I seem experientially to fall into sin. And then in Romans chapter 8, the reason I can say no to sin is because of the Holy Spirit's ministry in my life. Again, just so we're on the same page, justification is an act of God whereby he declares the sinner righteous on the basis of God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Sanctification, and now I'm using the word in the way I said I would, experiential or progressive sanctification. Sanctification is a work of God the Holy Spirit whereby he progressively transforms the believer into the image of Christ on the basis of of God's grace through faith. Yeah, sound familiar? Justification is an act of God, an instantaneous act of God, whereby he declares instantaneously the believer to be justified, permanently justified. You have been forever saved from the penalty of sin. But sanctification, experiential or progressive, is a work of God the Holy Spirit, whereby he progressively transforms. Justification was instantaneous. Sanctification is progressively, but notice that it is on the basis of grace through faith. Same basis, but one is initial saving faith. The second is subsequent acts of faithful obedience, because that's how faith is expressed in the believer's life, is by obeying God. Just that's the way the love is expressed. Jesus says, if you love me, you're going to obey me. Don't say you love me, which people do all the time, and then fail to obey. So don't miss that. Both are by grace through faith. Sometimes people have an, an attitude that, that justification is totally by grace. Sanctification is totally by works. No, you do work in sanctification, but it's still by grace through faith. We'll see this unfold as we continue in our study. Some have said in the past, and this is not bad, sanctification is taking justification seriously. Now that you're saved, what do I need to do? There is a great deal of discussion on the relationship between sanctification and justification. And again, I'll say one more time, as I'm using the term sanctification from here on out, I'm speaking of experiential sanctification, the maturing process for the believer. A great deal of discussion takes place on this in the Christian community today. Most all recognize a distinction in those two concepts. But it's the relationship between the two that's at the center of discussion. Most everybody that I know of would say, yes, there's a distinction between justification and sanctification. But what's the, what's the nature of that distinction? And also, what's the nature of the relationship between the two? Does sanctification automatically follow justification? And if you're up on theological discussions, you know exactly where this one is fixing to lead. 
Actually, it's not. I understand it's not proper English to say fixing, so I'll say, you'll, you'll understand exactly where this is about to take us, if you prefer. Is does sanctification automatically follow justification, or is sanctification expected and normal for the believer, but not automatic? you see the distinction between the two? Does one automatically follow the other? If I trust Jesus Christ, is, is it inevitable that I'm going to become a mature believer? Or, if I trust Jesus Christ, is it expected for me to, to be progressively sanctified? Is it the norm for me to be progressively sanctified, but not necessarily automatic that I would be? The more Calvinistic or Reformed that a theologian is, the more likely it is that you'll hold to the sanctification automatically follows justification view. The reasoning is that if you are a new creature in Christ, indwelt with the Holy Spirit, you will inevitably, key word, experience a change, and that change for the better, in your life. This view reasons that if an outward change is not observed in an individual, they more than likely have not been justified in the first place. The most well-known advocate of this view in our culture is uh, John MacArthur, uh, a very fine uh, preacher on the radio and um, Jerry Davis's roommate in college. A lot of you didn't know that. Uh, but also, many fine theologians hold this view. Uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse, one of my heroes of a past couple generations ago, held to this view. Others, however, believe that while progressive sanctification is normal, it is expected for the believer, it is far from automatic. Sanctification, under this view, requires literally thousands upon thousands of decisions over the course of one's lifetime to faithfully obey the commands of God under the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this progressive march toward maturity. There can be, under this view, and are genuine believers who fail to exercise post-salvation faith. I worded this very carefully. Genuine believers who fail to exercise post-salvation faith. Not initial saving faith, but post-salvation faith. And disobey consistently enough that their lives, on the outside look very much like those who have not been saved in the first place. The second view recognizes that possibility. It doesn't say that it's normal. It doesn't say that it should be expected. It just recognizes the possibility exists. While not expected, not normal, it can happen. And it does happen. Some of the names that you might be familiar with that advocate this view would be men like Charles Ryrie, Robert Leitner, Zane Hodges, Bob Wilkin, Tony Evans, and Elliot Johnson. Several of those have spoken at our church. It is my view that the, the scriptures best validate the second view. Progressive sanctification is normal, and it is expected for the believer, but it is far from an automatic. We don't have the ability to examine the life of a person who professes faith in Jesus Christ and proclaim that they have, in fact, not trusted Jesus Christ. Only God has that ability. At the same time, I think it's very unlikely that someone could go their entire Christian life 
and not perform any fruit of salvation at all. I hope you see the distinction. I'm saying that's very unlikely that that would ever be the case. But we're not qualified fruit inspectors. We, we can't see. We don't follow people around all the time. A lot of fruit is produced in the soul. It, it's a mental attitude. And so we don't know what's going on in someone's soul. Now, I want to say this. I've, I've spoken with many of these men. Zane Hodges, I, I've read him, and I've spoken with him. I've had lunch with him. St. Hodges will be the first person to tell you that he himself doesn't believe it's very likely at all that anyone would ever say no their entire life to God if they're truly a believer. But what he's saying is that scripturally, theologically, the possibility exists that that might happen. If we truly have a will that is not bent and coerced by God, to speak of the Calvinistic doctrine of irresistible grace, which is the paper that I'm going to be presenting in California. Now, Romans chapter 6. Paul begins this incredible chapter, and this is one that perhaps, if you've done a lot of Bible memory, this might be the first major chapter that you memorized. I know a man in our church that did that at one point and, and, and ministered to us by showing us how one could memorize this passage. Remember that it's a great, great passage to memorize. Paul says, what shall we say then? This question takes us back to the question and answer style that Paul has already employed in this letter. You might want to just make a mental note. He did it back in chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. He says, then what advantage has the Jew, or what benefit is there in circumcision? You know, he asks these questions that he knows people are thinking so that he can answer it for them. He also does it in chapter 3, verses 27 through 31, what purpose is there in boasting? Where's the boasting then? And he answers that in, in 27 through 31. And then in chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, what then shall we say that Abraham our forefather according to the flesh is found? What's the illustration of Abraham? So this is not the first time he's introduced a topic with a question. But it's a question everybody's thinking, or at least, I shouldn't say everybody, at least a significant enough number of people that he knows are reading this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he knows this is a question that needs to be dealt with. What shall we say then? Should we remain in sin that grace might increase? This question is raised in response to Paul's assertion in 520 that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Remember in chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, we talk about the two headships, and we talk about how both acts, one act of disobedience, one act of obedience, were both momentous in their significance. But one of those two acts was powerful enough to overcome the other one. Remember which one it was? The act of Christ was more powerful than the act of Adam, so no matter what, how intense Adam's sin was, Christ's act of obedience was more powerful. And so... That's where the phrase comes from. You know, you can't out the grace of God. Ever heard that? It's a true statement. You cannot out the grace of God. But does that mean, because you can't out the grace of God, that we ought to try? Some people do. Let's just see how far grace goes. And wait a minute. Is grace a good or a bad thing? You can say it. Just what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Good. Yeah, please don't say bad. Grace is a good thing. So if it's a good thing... Wouldn't we want more of it? Yeah. Well, if it's a good thing and we want more of it, and sin, you can't out the grace of God, so 
Maybe what Paul's driving at is an antinomian kind of attitude. You know, he's already said, he's already implied that the law doesn't save you. The law exposes sin. That exposure brings more grace. I got what we should do. Let's sin some more. If grace is good, if grace glorifies God, let's sin some more. You know, a lot of, a lot of churches could be built on that. You know, they did it in the ancient world. You know, the, the, the first church of sinfulness of Corinth, and it was pretty much that way. They would have no, they, would, they could probably do seminars, you know, on, on church growth, just sin that grace might increase. But Paul says, uh, hold on just a second before we go that way. In verse 2, he says, me genoito. Now, this is the strongest possible way Paul could have said, no, that's not what I'm talking about. In the New American Standard says, may it never be. And there's an exclamation point after that. Now, you remember in, in ancient Greek literature, there were no punctuation marks. So if you see an exclamation mark in here, it means that just by that very, the very nature of that phrase, it's so emphatic that the translators were legitimate in putting an exclamation mark there. May it never be, and I, that communicates, I suppose, but I want you to feel free to insert whatever your strongest negative would be in there with, with some reason and decorum, please, uh, depending on who you are. It could be translated, absolutely not, no way, or my personal favorite, are you out of your mind thinking that? And that's what I really think Paul had in mind. You know, don't, don't come to me with that one because you'd be out of your mind to say that I'm going to sin some more so that grace might increase and God could be glorified. Yes, grace would increase. Yes, God would be glorified. But no, it's not going to do you any good. Remember, now we've come to the progressive sanctification part. We've come to the part where now that we're saved, what's, supposed to be, what's the rest of our life supposed to look like? It should be a steady march toward maturity. Now, unfortunately, it hardly ever is one of these. Point of salvation, entrance into heaven. Most of the time, it doesn't look like this, does it? I wish it did. Most of the time, it doesn't. Most of the time, it's one of these waves. You know, you do good for a while, and then you do poorly. And then sometimes the better we do, the worse we do. But you know what? The idea is to be heading in that direction. There will be periods of time in any believer's life, under the view that I'm presenting, at least, of progressive sanctification, where you have these dips. And at a point like this, whether it be a day, a month, a year, Decade for you? I don't know. While you're down there, if somebody was to evaluate your life for you, not God, but if somebody else was, they, they may very well say, I don't think they were ever saved at all. You see the point that we're making here? I don't think they were, they were ever saved at all. But the march to maturity is not a straight line march. That's the reality of it. That's Romans 7. If you just had Romans 6, you might not know that, but that's why you read the whole thing. And then when we get to Romans 8, we see what the power is that enables us to get up to here in the first place, and that's God the Holy Spirit. For if it was not for God the Holy Spirit, there would be no progress whatsoever. That the Christian 
has died to sin is a major point for Paul in this chapter. So Paul emphatically denies that the Christian should sin in order to gain more grace. And he explains himself with a rhetorical question in verse 2. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Whenever the word death is found, in this case the verb died in the scripture, we must determine what kind of death is meant. This is one of those issues that we, we touched on just in, a, in an overview way on Saturday called hermeneutics. We need to make an interpretive decision. Now, when we observe, we see that the word death is used. But in the hermeneutic stage, we have to decide between options and what kind of death is mentioned. Um, the scriptures have a variety of different ideas with death. Death is essentially a separation from God. Or, I'm sorry, a separation from something. It could be physical death, the separation of the body and the soul. Sexual death, the, sexuation, uh, the death separation of a person with reproductive capabilities. The example of that is also Abraham in the scriptures. And spiritual death, a separation of an individual with God. Here the text says that we died to sin. Or possibly it could, it could be understood we died with respect to sin. And again, if we had begun our study here, we, we might be at a loss with regard to what Paul is referring to. But because we now understand the idea, and I'm making an assumptive close here, we now understand the idea that Paul presented in 5.12-21, through 21, we can see that what Paul is speaking of here is that we are no longer associated by position with Adam, Adam's disobedience, Adam's sin, and the death that came as a result of that. Now, of course, there's still an overflow because part of that death that came as association with Adam's sin is physical death. And we're still going to die physically. But we're not going to pay the ultimate penalty. We're going to, we're, we now have eternal life through Jesus Christ. Our Lord and I, and I meant that, we have eternal life. You won't receive eternal life after this one's gone. You have it right now. You just won't live it in this body of corruption. And most of us really don't want to if we were to, if we were to consider that honestly especially the longer you go, the more things break down, the more we start longing for that body that's not going to do it anymore. I used to know a, a lady, and some of you did too, I'm, I'm sure, by the name of Pam Skurlock. And Cindy, and, and many of you too, used to drive her to church, and, and she was a, just an incredible, incredible person, had a mind like a steel trap, um, had a sense of humor to go along with it, but had a body that was about as ravaged and crippled as one could get and still be able to live by herself and, 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 and get places she wanted to go. And I thought about that when she passed away. She passed away um, in August of 1991. David was just a, a baby at the time. I was out of town in New Orleans when we found out. That's how I remember the particular date. Cindy was kind of sad that she wasn't there because she had helped care for her a lot. But, but um, I felt a sense of release for Pam. Because now she wasn't encumbered by that body that was ravaged by disease. And she now is in heaven, absent from that body, face to face with the Lord. There's no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, no more death, awaiting a resurrection body that will be perfect. 
and I can't wait to see how beautiful she'll be in that incredible resurrection body because she had an inner beauty. Remember? She had an inner beauty that was just fantastic. And if you could see past the external into the internal, you would have seen what a beautiful person she was. And someday we'll, we'll be able to gaze upon that without the hindrance of that body that was eaten up by disease. Well, we are now associated with Christ, not associated with Adam. That's what Paul is saying. Which is how, how shall we who died to sin? Now, here's the point. We had, we had either an association with Adam or Christ. We were born associated with Adam. We exercised faith in Jesus Christ through grace, by grace through faith. And now, instead of being associated with Adam and de- sin and death, we left that by faith. We are now associated with Christ. Obedience and life. We're associated with obedience now. That's who we are now. And what Paul's saying, don't make this, don't, don't become out of your mind by saying we should sin more, the grace might increase. That's the old you. The new you is associated with Christ. That's why I say sin for the believer is common, but it's not normal. Now it's normal for you to obey, even though we may not do it commonly. He says in verse 3, or do you not know? Uh, It could be understood. Are you unaware? Or if you're in a bad mood and you're translating this, are you ignorant of the fact that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. The moment some expositors see the word baptism, they immediately insert water into this passage. But that's not the case here. There is no water in Romans 6. Remember that axiom. There is no water in Romans 6. The word baptism at its core means identification. There are, there are several baptisms in the Scripture. One is the baptism of Moses. Paul mentions that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. That's a dry baptism. When Moses went through the Red Sea, he went through dry. Now, if you got wet, you weren't baptized with Moses' baptism. You were baptized with maybe Pharaoh's, although it doesn't ever use that terminology. The Egyptians got real wet, but the Jews went through dry shod. There's also John's baptism, a very unique baptism in the Scriptures, spoken of in the Synoptic Gospels particularly. But John's baptism is, um, was a very unique baptism. It was for the nation Israel specifically. John's baptism is not valid for today. It was proclaiming the people that it was to prepare the people for the way of the Messiah. They should repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. In other words, they needed to get their life straight because the Messiah was here. John's baptism of Jesus is also very unique. Um, Jesus came to John to be baptized. John rightly says, hey, listen, I don't think I should be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. What's going on here? You don't have any sins for which you need to turn. Jesus is doing anyway. It's part of the Father's plan for me. And what I believe Jesus was doing was saying, I want to be identified with the Father's plan for my life. 
We have Christian baptism that's mentioned in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. And then there's also spirit baptism in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Here in Romans chapter 6, the spirit is not mentioned specifically. But it is the spirit who places us in the union with Christ and who places us into the body of Christ, which has led many to decide that that's what Paul is referring to here, is spirit baptism. But it may not be quite that easy. Paul is essentially... Speaking of identifications, we were identified with Adam in sin. We're now identified with Christ in obedience. When we sin, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are returning to our old identification experientially. Now, we're not returning to there positionally, but we return there experientially. I love going back and visiting my the hometown I lived in when I was in high school, Casper, Wyoming. Had a good time there. Loved the city. It's got, love the town. It's got 40,000 people. It's not very big. But it's got a mountain on the south end of it. I always, whenever I go back, I always like going up the mountain, looking out over the city. I do the same thing every time. Go back and look at my old house, take a picture of it, walk through Mike Cedar Park. But you know, every time I go back now, and I haven't lived there for 30 plus years, but every time I go back there, it's a little less like home. And the last time I went, it was a lot less like home. Didn't know anybody, although I saw some names on the football stadium, but they changed it. It didn't look anything like what it was. They replaced the grass that I made that final touchdown on and put artificial turf down. It, it, they've, got a, you know, they've just got all these different things. It's not my home anymore. And I, and I felt, I hate to say it, almost a little uncomfortable there. I didn't, I didn't fit in there anymore in a much greater way. Your home's not with Adam anymore. And when you go back to visit, you don't reside there. I mean, you don't live there in the sense of any kind of permanency in your residence. But you can't go back and visit. And unfortunately, we do oftentimes. And it ought to, it ought to not feel right when you do. I think that's, the fact that we don't live there anymore, that's not who we are anymore. That's why it doesn't feel right. Now, you might can pretend that it does. I can, you know how we do that sometimes? We pretend, we fool ourselves and think we're having a good time doing this, while the whole time, you know, good and well, there's this little voice in the back of your mind that says, you don't live here anymore. This is not you. This is not right. And the reason that happens is because you're no longer identified with Adam, disobedience, and death. You're identified with Christ, obedience, and life. So you'll never feel better about yourself in all of your existence than when you are functioning under that second identification and obeying the will of God for your life. Even if it is a little uncomfortable physically, even if it costs you some money, even if it costs you that promotion, if you know you did the right thing and you're living where you are supposed to be living, you'll feel better about it. We have been identified with Christ and with his death. We have been intimately identified. By grace through faith, we have been so identified with Jesus Christ that we are also identified with what he did. Now, we didn't die on the cross any more than we are in reality Jesus. We're just identified with him. But we're so identified with him that Paul says we're identified with what he did, too. However, we are intimately identified with him and his work now that we've placed our faith in him. Paul's point in these first three verses 
don't live experientially under the former head. You don't belong to Adam, disobedience and sin and death anymore. You're not now, you are now identified with Jesus Christ, obedience and life. And Paul in the weeks to come will tell us, live like you know you're identified with Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we're grateful, so grateful for Paul's letter to the Romans that he wrote through the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. Father, I'm grateful that we've now begun a section on progressive sanctification. I do pray that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit we would not only understand it, but even as we get to Romans 8, we'd understand and appreciate the work that your Holy Spirit's doing in our lives to progressively sanctify us. Father, we don't live, we don't, we don't belong to Adam anymore. Help us not to live there. Help us to live where we are identified with Jesus Christ, with obedience, and with the life that goes with it. And we'll give you all the praise and glory and the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.